Hello there. Welcome to Reading Through the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament, um, as we are walking through the scriptures together. Thank you for being with us. Sorry, it's uh, these, some of these episodes have been delayed um, in getting to you, um, but I'm hoping to get back on track here and uh, so we can continue to read the Old Testament scriptures, study them, and see Christ in them as Christ is there for us, saving us, redeeming us. So this is for week 15, week 15, the week of April 9th through the 15th. Uh, So I think this week we are in Numbers 4 through 9. Numbers 4 through 9, the book of Numbers. It's actually a fun book. I like the book of Numbers. Um, It can be, um, you know, it can be uh, sometimes, I guess, a difficult book to go through. There's there's a lot there. Um, but I find the stories and the instruction and what we see and learn about who God is and who we see we are as very instructive in the book of Numbers as God's people are in the wilderness. Remember, they've been redeemed from Egypt, taken out of slavery. They're on their way to the promised land. Um, but as we see, though they're out of Egypt, Egypt is not out of them yet. The people of Israel are still uh, rebellious at heart, and we are going to see that in the book of Numbers. We're going to see this this uh, story unfold as as God is gracious and merciful, but also shows his holiness and his justice and his righteousness towards them. And all of this was intended to convict the Israelites to show them their great need of a savior, to show them the fact that they cannot be holy enough. They cannot do enough. They are not the people they ought to be. But that's why the promise of the seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, and as we they would later on see the seed of David, David, uh, who is to come and to redeem them, to do everything that they could not do. And so God ha- instituted and set up this, this covenant at Sinai and with his people and their whole relationship. And the whole point, as Paul tells us in the New Testament, was that it was a schoolmaster, a guardian, a tutor in order to teach Israel and therefore to teach us the fact of, of all that we ought to be and do and all that we realize we cannot be. And therefore, though, we see that everything that we ought to be but cannot be, Jesus Christ is for us. And that's what the whole point of the Mosaic Covenant, that's what the whole point of this book of Numbers is about, is highlighting the the insufficiency and the sinfulness um, of God's people, of sinners, but the fact that God gives what he requires And that is the good news of the gospel. Well, in Numbers chapter 4 here, we open up in chapter 4, right? We've got uh, the duties of the Kohathites uh, listed there, uh, Gershon, and all of these Levites here, they're, they're their duties of what they are called to do. We taught, we learn about in chapter five about the unclean people and confession, restitution, a, an interesting test for adultery. In chapter six, we read about the Nazarite vow. And later on, we'll learn more about that as we learn about Samson, because he was a Nazarite, a consecrated and a set apart way to God, um, a, a unique vow that somebody could take upon themselves. 
Then we have the Aaronic Blessing in chapter 6. We've got offerings at the tabernacle, uh, the consecration there, the seven lamps, and so on. The Passover celebrated in chapter 9, and God dwelling with his people, the cloud filling the temple or the tabernacle. So here we are. Let's let's read some stuff here this week to see what can we learn from Numbers chapters 4 through 9. I've got here, this is a sermon actually from Charles Spurgeon. It's from Numbers 6 because we have that beautiful passage that many churches still today will use in their worship services as a benediction. So in, in historic Christian worship, right, we would have an invocation where we call upon the name of the Lord. The Lord, first of all, we have a call to worship where, because um, God always inaugurates and initiates the relationship with us, right? So we would have like a call to worship, which we do. We read the, we'd read an opening scripture, right? Pastor Scott will read that. And he reads the scripture to us and it's calling us God through his written word, calling us to worship him. And then we in prayer respond back to him and call upon his name and ask him to be with us. Well, similarly, the benediction is the, the last kind of that, 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 that punctuation mark at the very end of the service in historic Christian worship where the benediction is there where we've worshiped the Lord, we've gone back and forth, we've heard his word, we've responded with gratitude or with confession of our sins and with faith. And then the very last part of the service is where we conclude the service. Again, God gets the first word, but God also gets the last word. And the benediction is the blessing where God sends us forth the last thing he wants us to hear is to hear his, his blessing, his benediction. And we have this famous blessing here that many churches today still use. Um, it says in verse 22 of chapter 6, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. This is called the blessing of the high priest. This is from C.H. Spurgeon. And uh, let's see what we can learn about this uh, in our faith and life as God's people. Uh, Spurgeon writes this, The Lord has blessed his people, and he would have them know it. He has blessed them with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and it is his wish that they should experience the fullness of this blessedness. Are any of the Lord's people without a sense of his blessing? It is not the will of God that you should continue in this low condition. If you are cast down, he has said to his prophets, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Have you sinned and wandered into the darkness? The Lord bids you return and encourages you to pray. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. The happy God would have you happy in the enjoyment of his blessing. To bring this blessing constantly to the remembrance of his chosen, the Lord appointed a representative of himself who should publicly pronounce his blessing upon the people. He chose Aaron and he bade Moses instruct him. Aaron was not only to offer sacrifice and to make intercession, but he was to take a higher stand and bestow blessings in the name of God upon the assembled people. Those who are old may fitly pronounce a blessing upon their children, as Jacob did upon his twelve sons, and the minister of Christ may in God's name pronounce a benediction upon the people. This was the custom in early times. The congregation was dismissed with the gracious words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.
Our God has appointed one above all others to bless his people, even our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the antitype of Aaron and his sons, and in the exercise of his high office, continually blesses his people. He began his ministry with the Sermon on the Mount and the word blessed. His whole his whole life was a stream of blessing, for he went about doing good. When he rose to heaven, having completed his ministry, it was as he lifted up his hands and blessed them. He shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven, bringing blessings with him, even gifts for men. In the name of the triune God, the Lord Jesus, from the highest glory, effectually blesses us today. Let not your hearts be troubled, as though you were beneath the storm cloud of the curse. Know ye not that the curse is altogether turned away from us? For he was made a curse for us. The blessing alone remains, and Jesus himself remains to repeat it. Remember with solemn awe and heart-searching that this blessing was for the children of Israel and for them only. Aaron was not appointed to bless the nations who were without God, but to bless the children of Israel. The great blessing which our Lord Jesus Christ pronounces is for his people, even for those to whom he gives eternal life. Ask yourselves whether you are believers as Jacob was. Are you pleaders with God as Jacob was? It was through his triumphant wrestling with God that he won the princely name of Israel. Have you ever prevailed in prayer? If so, though you may feel very feeble and halt as you come from the scene of conflict, yet to you, even to you, as being spiritually of the seed of Israel, the Lord Christ, the high priest of our profession, has given the blessing. But if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no blessing for him, since that awful text thunders at him. Let him be anathema maranatha, accursed at his coming. The Lord grants that such a curse may lie on none of us, but may we, as we hear the priestly benediction, be able by faith to receive it as our own. In handling my text, I shall first dwell for a few minutes upon the general character of this benediction. Much is to be gathered here. Secondly, we shall review the blessing itself, weighing its three clauses and gathering instruction from each word. Thirdly, we will hearken to the divine Amen, which is at the, end of, which is at the close of it, and they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. May the Holy Spirit aid us in this meditation. First then, consider the general character of this blessing. It was a blessing in the first place given through a priest. Not every man might take upon himself to bless the people. It was Aaron, God's high priest, who offered sacrifice for the people who was called to bless the tribes. The hands which had been stained with the blood of the victim were outstretched in blessing. Once in the year, the Lord's high priest went in unto God for the people, not without blood. And when his solemn duties within the veil had been duly done, he came forth and put on those glorious garments, which for a while he had laid aside. And he blessed the people as he was authorized to do. From which I gather that we can get no blessing from God except through the priesthood of Christ. There must be the sacrifice and the sprinkling of the blood before the music of the blessing can sound in our ears. God bestows all spiritual blessings upon us in and through the Lord Jesus, who died for us and is ordained to be the one mediator between God and man. Christ is the great high priest who offered himself without spot unto God is the divine channel of blessing. Do we know the Lord's anointed? Are we resting in the sacrifice which he has presented, even his own blood? Without Christ, no blessing can come to us. O oh, my hearers, do not remain without the precious blood, if that be your present condition. But may the good spirit of God lead you to hear the voice of love, which cries, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus saith, No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. 
You cannot know the Father as a God of infinite blessedness, except through the Son, who is the priest with the one effectual sacrifice. It is a priestly benediction sealed with sacrificial blood, and it can only be bestowed by the hand of our glorious priest. Next, this benediction is of the nature of intercession. There lies within these words a prayer. The Lord bless thee and keep thee as the cry of the man of God to Jehovah that he would bless and keep his people. The priest's office was to make intercession for the people, and we have in our Lord Jesus a high priest who pleads evermore for his chosen. We have a high priest through whom all that come to God will be accepted, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Never forget that he made intercession for the transgressors. He has, moreover, a special pleading for believers. Concerning them, there is a peculiar exercise of intercession, for he says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. The high priest had a peculiar office in reference to the seed of Israel, and our Lord makes special intercession for his saints. Well, Spurgeon eventually continues. We're going to skip forward some of these things. Uh, He says this, but next this benediction is yet of a higher order than intercession. Every man in the camp might have prayed, the Lord bless and keep his people and lift up his countenance upon them. But no man in all the camp would have dared to say in the same authoritative style as Aaron did, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Here is not only faith pleading, but faith receiving and bestowing. Without doubt, says Paul, the less is blessed of the greater. And thus Aaron was greater than the people, being set apart to a high and honorable office into which none else might intrude. He was God's representative, and so he spoke with the authority of his office. Notice, Spurgeon continues later on down here, he says, notice in the next place that this blessing is sure. Aaron did not bless the people of his own will. He did not utter good words of his own composing, but there went forth a divine power which made the form a blessing to be a blessing indeed. So there was even the form there. And then he says this later on, he says, but there is another reason for being certain that the benediction is sure to all the seed. Not only was the person chosen to bless the people, but the very words which he should use were put into his mouth. On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, Here we have a fixed form of benediction to which Aaron was to restrict himself. Forms of prayer are not in themselves sinful. In some instances, forms are given in the word of God, as in the book of Psalms and elsewhere. Free prayer is most useful and will ordinarily consort best with the movements of the free spirit. But in the case of a benediction, it is well that it was dictated to the man of God. The children of Israel might miss blessing through the ignorance or forgetfulness or unbelief of Aaron, and therefore it was not left to him, but he had to learn by heart each word and sentence. In this wise, and in no other was he to bless the people. I like this, for if God himself puts the very words into the mouth of his priest, then they are God's words. So think about that as well. That's a fascinating insight, isn't it? That God put these words into Aaron's mouth for us. And he was to those so we can trust that this is God's blessing towards us as his people. He says this again, while dwelling upon the form of this benediction, a verb that it seems to, that it, uh, I'm trying to see what that word would be, to be continued. It was not dependent upon the life of one man, for Moses was to speak unto Aaron and to his sons. 
Aaron could not continue forever by reason of death. In due time, he must be stripped of his official garments and die like the rest of men. But then his son came in his stead, and the perpetual oblation and benediction were maintained. The blessing was not to cease from generation to generation. Think about that. God was continually saying, I don't want you to simply say this one time, but I want you to continue to say this blessing upon the people of Israel, upon my people, the church, forever and ever. Spurgeon later on says this, I would add that this blessing came frequently. We do not know how often Aaron uttered this blessing upon the people. In this passage, it is left without any determination as to times and seasons. It is something like our Savior's memorial feast. We are nowhere told how, when and how often we are to celebrate the Supper of the Lord. Although it seems to me to have been the practice in apostolic times to break bread on the first day of the week, there is no law laid down. It is put thus, this do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. So Aaron is not told that on such a day and at such an hour he shall bless the people, but he may do it as his heart dictates. So he was to continually bless the people of God and to do it and to bring this this blessing to them, to remind them of the gospel of Christ and God's love for them. So we've talked about the, the blessing itself in general, but then secondly, Spurgeon says this, we will now consider the blessing itself. He says, notice carefully that this benediction passes from the priest to God. It is not I, Aaron, ordained of God, bless you, and like a shepherd I will keep you and smile upon you and give you peace. Oh no, the blessing falls from Aaron's lips, but it comes originally from the Lord's heart and hand. It runs thus, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Every blessing must come directly from God. What an honor was put on Aaron to be made the mouthpiece of God. What an honor is put upon the preacher when he becomes the instrument in God's hand for cheering his people. What an honor is put upon you when, in talking with your children or with your friends, you are privileged to be as a golden conduit pipe through which the holy oil of salvation flows to them. I pray you seek much of this honor. Put yourselves in God's way that you may be vessels for his use. Later on, he says this, this fact makes the blessing exceedingly precious. The Lord bless thee. What a blessing the Lord gives. Have we not heard a mother say to her little child, bless you? What a wealth of meaning she threw into it. But when God says, bless you, there are infinity, there are infinity and immutability in it. There can be no limit to the goodwill of the infinite God. Our gifts are like a handful of pence. God's gifts are so rich that I dare not liken them even to silver or gold. When Jehovah blesses, it is after the manner of his sovereign almightiness. His benediction sheds joy and glory over our entire manhood. The Lord bless thee. What an ocean of blessedness is in it. And keep thee. What safekeeping is that? And be gracious unto thee. What grace is that? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee. Oh, to be countenanced of God. What fellowship that means. And give thee peace. What a peace is that which God gives, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. He says later on, I call your special attention in looking over this benediction to the fact that the name of the Lord or Jehovah is three times mentioned. Jehovah bless thee and keep thee. Jehovah make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Jehovah lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. It is the remark of scholars that each one of these names bears a different mark in the original Hebrew. 
I will not say that this teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, but I must say that, believing the doctrine of the Trinity, I understand the passage all the better. The shadow of the triune God is on the sacred benediction in the name thrice repeated. Yet is the Lord but one, for he says, I will bless thee. Here we hear the voice of one, yet three. We sang this morning a hymn beginning, Holy, Holy, Holy. For thus the heavenly worshippers salute the divine majesty. They cry, Holy, 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 three times. Why not twice? Why not four times? Why not seven times? For this last, there might be a reason, since seven is the number of perfection. Trying expressions are most frequent in Holy Scripture. And what can this mean but that the Lord, who is one God forever and ever, is also threefold in his existence and manifestation? We are to speak of him as holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And we may pronounce the blessing upon the people in the name of Jehovah, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, still knowing that there is but one who has solemnly said at the close of the blessing, they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Let the sacredness of that name, and its being mentioned in this way, confirm you in the belief of the inscrutable mystery of the three-in-one. What is this benediction now before us, but an early form of the benediction used universally in the church of Jesus Christ in all ages? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. He says uh, later on here, you know, you can talk about the Trinity, the Father and the, and the Son, uh, and then I'm the Spirit here, um, and then at the very, so he's continuing to talk about how the, and yet there's only one God, right? He's a one God existing in three persons who blesses us. And then he says this, and his third main point is this. More I might have said upon this Old Testament benediction, but time fails me. And so I must conclude by a word or two in the third place upon the divine amen. The divine amen is in the last verse, and they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Here is the authority repeated by way of confirmation of what has been said. They shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. The priest does his part, and then the Lord makes the blessing effectual. Christ is authorized of God to put the name of God upon his people. It is a delightful thing for the Lord to call us by our own name. As it is written, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. It is even more soul-enriching to have the divine name put upon us, so as to be called sons of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Herein is condescension on God's part, and honor and security for us. When the Lord's name is named upon anything, he will guard his own dedicated things. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and within it we are safe. I think I see here a confirmation of those blessings which are pronounced by good men. They shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. I loved to have my grandfather's blessing when I was preaching the word in early days. He has now gone into the glory, but he blessed me, and none can take away the name of God from me. Most of you will remember the blessings of good men who are now gone to glory, and God confirms those blessings. He allows his people, whom he has made priests and kings unto God, to put his name upon others and to pronounce blessings upon them. Their word shall stand, and what they bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. The blessing of your father and of your mother shall come upon you. The blessing of the angels of the churches whom the Lord holds as stars in his right hand shall fall on faithful believers and helpers as a dew from the Lord himself. And then comes, best of all, the blessing of our God most surely promised, and I will bless them. 
I will not attempt to preach from that little great text. I will bless them. I could enlarge upon it by the month. I will bless them. They shall have their troubles, but I will bless them through their troubles. When they have earthly goods, I will bless them and make them real comforts. I will bless their basket and their store. If those earthly comforts are taken away, I will give them compensation a thousandfold in myself. I who gave the mercies will allow no one but myself to take them away. And this shall only be done in love that I may bless them still more. Brethren, the world may curse us, but if God bless us, the curse will be as the whistling wind. Friends may become enemies or may forget us, but if God blesses us, we can bear the wound. God blessed us when we were young. He kept us in the giddy paths of youth. He blessed us in our hale manhood and helped us when our family cares were upon us. And he will sustain us now that we lean heavily on the staff and find the grasshopper to be a burden. He will bless us when sickness lays us low. And when we come to die, Jesus will bless us with dying grace for dying moments and hand us out our best things last. We shall wake up in the likeness of Christ, and then we shall be satisfied with his blessing, being transformed into the image of him by whom the blessing comes. The judgment day shall dawn, the earth shall pass away, but the Lord will bless us. God's will has an eternal range. When God saith, I will, all the devils in hell cannot turn aside the blessing, and all the ages of eternity cannot change the king's word. I will bless them. How much he will bless them, he does not say, but the great eye who makes the promise blesses like a God. God himself will bless his people directly and personally. I will bless them. Here is absolute certainty based on the faithfulness of the Lord. Here is endless mercy certified by the divine eternity and immutability. Do you whisper, but the Lord sends us trials? I answer, it is true. What son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But in this is a covenant blessing. For every twig of the rod shall bring forth to them the comfortable fruits of righteousness ere many days are past. You do not need that I should say another word. Go home with this celestial music in your ears. I will bless them. This blessed assurance does not belong to you all indiscriminately. We have no blessing for those who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. O sinners, make you conscious that you are outside of the blessing, and may that terrible fact create in you an aching heart and a longing soul which nothing can ever rest but the blessing of the Lord God. You that are resting in Jesus, hear these words, which I have read you from the inspired book, and may the Holy Ghost write them on your minds. Thus saith Jehovah of his people, I will bless them. The Lord has caused his servants to bless us by the testimony of the gospel. And now he himself blesses us by his spirit. He will himself bring his precious things to our door. He will himself feast us at his table. Yea, he will himself become our food, our bread, and our water. Come, let us bless the Lord. Since he has so blessed us, let us heartily bless him. We will wind up our meditation by singing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Well, that right there is a very meaty and helpful uh, sermon on the blessing that God gives us in number six. So God instituted the priest to bless the people of God so that they could hear his blessing upon them and trust in those promises and believe them. 
Well, I've actually got one more Spurgeon sermon for you. It's from Numbers chapter 9, because later on in Numbers chapter 9, we read this, that they had the Passover. They celebrated the Passover. In verses 11 and 12, we read this, In the second month on the fourteenth day at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. So this again highlights the the Passover, what it signified and sealed to believers in the Old Testament, to those who ate this with faith. And here's Spurgeon. This is called feeding on a whole Christ. In great tenderness, God permitted the Passover to be kept a second time, that those who had unavoidably been defiled at the first observance might not be shut out from the memorable and symbolical rite. But although he altered the date of the Passover, he never changed the form of it. The Paschal Feast was to be the same whenever it was celebrated and by whomsoever it was observed. Whether one family or an Israelite who happened to be a stranger and visitor in the house, whoever it might be, kept the Passover, the same regulations were to be carefully followed. From this I gather, learning a lesson from the type, that whatever may be the experiences through which we have come to salvation, yet Christ is ever the same, and we must partake of him in the same way. You who have been so defiled that you have, as it were, to eat of the second Passover, even at the eleventh hour, long after others have been feeding on Christ, still there is the same Christ for you as there is for those who come at the right time, who seek the Lord early and find him while yet the dew of their youth is upon him, upon them. There is none but Jesus for each one of us. There is no way for this man peculiar to himself because of his righteous life and no way for that person peculiar to himself because of his ungodliness. But for the most moral and the most immoral, there is the same Savior to be received by like precious faith. Only by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus are we delivered from wrath and only by feeding upon Christ can our spiritual life be sustained. There are not two gospels, but only one gospel. There are not two Christs, but only one Christ. There are not two roads to heaven, but only one road to heaven. Let us go together to the cross, view the one great sacrifice for sin, and by faith find salvation in him. The subject for us to consider at this time will be just this. If we do receive Christ, that reception is beautifully expressed and represented by feeding upon him. So first... We are to feed upon Jesus Christ. The Paschal Lamb was to be eaten. Secondly, we are to receive Christ and feed upon him as a whole Christ. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any bone of it. Then thirdly, we are to receive Christ in union with others. It is a very blessed thing when our personal reception of Christ, our personal feeding upon Christ, is not a solitary act, but is done in company, as when of old a whole household drew near to feed upon the Paschal Lamb. First, then, we are to feed upon Jesus Christ. The true reception of Christ is very beautifully expressed by our feeding upon him. The point a sinner longs to know when he is really aroused and his conscience is thoroughly awakened is the first this. How can I be saved? I know that Christ is a Savior, but how can I make him my Savior? I understand that he has provided an atonement by which sin can be put away. How can that atonement put away my sin? When the Paschal lamb was killed in the household of the Israelite, first the blood must be sprinkled on the lintel and the two side posts by the man who was the head of the household. And as soon as it was sprinkled, its virtue operated at once. That house was secure. 
Next, they must bring in this lamb which had been roasted with fire. They must gather around the table, and all they had to do with it was to eat it. Now, eating is such a simple operation that I cannot explain it. I suppose that the best way of explaining how to eat would be by eating, and the best way of explaining how Christ is to be received is to receive him. Yet, since I am seeking to help some poor troubled one, I must try, if I can, to explain what it was to eat the paschal lamb and what it is to receive Christ. I say again, eating the paschal lamb was a very simple process. Moses might have said to a Jew, that lamb, roasted with fire, is yours if you will eat it. There is no ceremony to be gone through, no incantation to be repeated, no genuflection to be performed. You stand at the table, you eat the lamb, and it is yours. Now, concerning feeding upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing to be done is to receive him by faith. Receiving is the first part of eating. You are hungry. Bread is set before you. You put the bread into your mouth. You receive it, and it becomes yours. So receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is the mouth by which he is to be received. Believe him. Believe what is testified concerning him in the word of God. Say to yourself, this record is true. Jesus is the Son of God. He came into the world as man, lived a holy life. He died a sacrificial death, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. I believe all this. I accept it as true, as true to me. And I take it not into my ear only as hearing it, but into my heart as believing it to be assuredly the truth whereby alone souls can be saved. But suppose I take him and have no right to him. Oh, all if thou once takest him, thou hast him, right or no right. Have I not often told you that if you have eaten a piece of bread, though you had no right to it, it will puzzle all the lawyers in the world to get it away from you? Possession, in such a case as that, is more than the proverbial nine points of the law. Yea, it is all the points of the law. And if thou takest Christ as thine, then thou hast Christ as thine. Oh, that thou wouldest grasp him now. Well, but suppose it is not right for me to have Christ. It is never wrong for a poor sinner to take Christ. So do thou have him now. If he be near thee, seize upon, seize upon him now. Lay hold on eternal life, says the apostle, and do thou lay hold on Christ, and God will never cry, hands off, to a soul that lays hold on Christ. Be boldly daring for once, and thou shalt not find thyself repulsed. The door of mercy is open, enter, thou, if thou art repulsed, thou wilt be the first that ever was rejected by Christ, whoever thou mayest be. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. I have done that, says one. I am very glad if you have, but have you really done it? There is a way of believing and yet not truly believing. A man believes that such and such a thing is true. At least he says that he does, and yet he may act in such a way as shall prove that he does not believe it. You are in, there, you are in your house, in bed and asleep. Someone wakes you up by crying out that your house is on fire, and you calmly turn over and go to sleep again. I know by your action that you could not have believed the report that was brought to you. One looks you in the face and tells you that he can see their traces of a deadly disease and that within a short time you will be dead unless you take a certain medicine. Do you tell me you believe that disease to be upon you and believe that medicine would heal you if you took it? And after telling me that, do you go home and think no more of it? Then I know that you have not spoken truly in saying that you believe, for true believing would move you to action. You would be seriously affected by these things if you believe them to be true. Come now then, let me ask you a question. 
Is sin a reality to you? Do you accept the sinner's position and confess that you need a savior? Do you believe that the son of God has appeared in human form on purpose that he might save such as you are? Can you advance one step further forwards and say, I believe in Christ as my savior? So far, so good. The bread is in your mouth. In eating, the next thing is that the food should undergo a process of digestion. It must lie in the body and be dissolved. So, in order to a full reception of Christ, there must be somewhat of digestion by meditation. The great truths I have mentioned enter the soul. They are turned over in the heart and mind by meditation. We think of them, ponder them, consider them. They begin to influence us, and our mind sets to work upon those truths, pressing the very just juice and essence out of them, making us to know their secret virtues and powers. Oh, sirs, there are some of you who will never be saved by Christ, because you will not think unless the Lord Jesus should graciously meet with you, and on a sudden you should be caused to believe on him, which I pray may be the case, I am afraid that you will certainly be lost. Some of you are not in a condition to get any good out of hearing the gospel, because you do not think of what you hear. You do not lay up in your hearts and turn over in your minds what is taught you on the Sabbath day. Many let the gospel have a clear thoroughfare, for they allow it to go in at one ear and out at the other. So Sunday after Sunday, week after week, month after month, year after year, with them, it is only hearing the gospel, and that is all. The truth has no opportunity to become food for, to their spirits. For what they seem to take in one minute, they cast out the next. And this is not feeding at all. It is but folly and mockery. Well, now, after food has entered the body and has been digested, there is a further process. I'm not going to any physiological discussions, but there is, as you know, the process that is called assimilation. Certain vessels within the body perform their various functions, and so gradually the food which has been taken is made to nourish the body and build it up. Thus the bread which, a little while ago, was separate from me, becomes inseparable from me. It has been taken up into my system, and has become part and parcel of myself. This is the best form of feeding upon Christ, when, having believed the truth about him, and having thought it over till we have digested it, certain secret faculties within our nature take him up, and assimilate him into our, into our spiritual life. Look ye, sirs, I believe that Christ was the incarnate Son of God. I do not merely believe that as a mere matter of fact, as I might believe that there is such a person as the Tsar of Russia, but I look to be saved by him who became man in order that he might save me. See further, I believe that this God incarnate did bear my sins in his own body on the tree. I look to be forgiven. Nay, I know that I am forgiven because he took my sin away and ended it so far as I am concerned. That is assimilating the great truth of the atonement in the inmost part of my spirit. I do not want to explain the process any longer. I want you to put it into practice. Now, beloved, you who have often fed upon Christ, feed on him again at this moment. Think of him as you know him and try to know more of him. But what you do know of him, grasp it. Press out these clusters, their great, their sacred juice. Draw out of these divine truths, the di these truths, the divine support, which they are intended to give to your spirit. Say, these truths are mine. I live on them. I could die on them. I want nothing better. So Spurgeon here is talking about feeding on Christ and the Passover. And then eventually here in the second part, he says this. This brings me to my second point, which is that we are to receive Christ as a whole. The Lord said concerning the Passover, they shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any bone of it. 
if we receive Christ, we must receive him as a whole. We must receive Christ in the entirety of his person. There was Alias. He would receive Christ as a good man, but not as God. But you cannot have Christ at all, except you have him as a whole. There were some who took the opposite side and were willing to receive Christ as God, but not as a bleeding, suffering man. But you cannot receive Christ at all if you will not have him altogether. You must have him in the entirety of his person as God and man, or else you cannot have him at all and cannot enjoy him as the food of your soul. We must also receive Christ in the entirety of his offices. He has come to be a prophet, priest, and king. And you must have a whole Christ as to his work. He comes to put away your sin by the shedding of his blood, and you say, I will have him. But listen, he comes to take away your sinfulness and make you holy by the water which flowed from the, with the blood from his riven side. You cannot take justification and omit sanctification. You must have both or neither. And we must have Christ in all his teachings. It will not do for us to say, I shall believe Christ when he speaks in his Sermon on the Mount and teaches us the ethics of ordinary life, but I will not believe him when he opens up the mysteries of his love as he addresses his disciples on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. You cannot have him at all unless you are willing to believe all that he has taught as far as you know it, and to believe that what he spoke must be true, even though as yet you do not know it. You must also take Christ in all his warnings. You must not turn your back when he says, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, and think his language too severe. They who cavil at one word of Christ have really caviled at the Christ himself. So, you, so must it be as to Christ and all his commands. It is ours not to reason why, but ours to do what he bids us. And we must not say, This is essential, and that is non-essential. We must not say, I will do this which he bids me, but I will not do that which he bids me. You are not disciples, but rebels if you act so. You are not his friends, but his enemies. If you thus pick and choose which of his commands you will obey, how can lie be such a good soldier who will sometimes how how can he be such a good soldier who will sometimes obey his captain, but will sometimes disobey? And it must be just the same as to Christ and his spirit. One says, Christ is very loving, and I will be loving too. You are right in saying so, my brother, but the Christ was very outspoken and very uncompromising. Will you also be outspoken and uncompromising? If not, your loving spirit will go for little, for it will only be a kind of pandering to worldliness. Well, now, beloved friends, you see what our orders are here. We are first to feed upon Christ, and then next we are to receive him as a whole. But I regret that there are some persons who do not feed upon a whole Christ. Some, alas, will not do so through sheer willfulness. They will pick and choose, and thus show their self-conceit and their rebellion. Do not so, do not so, I beseech you. But feed on the whole Christ, as the Israelites ate the whole of the Paschal Lamb. Some are unable through ignorance to feed on a whole Christ. There are some who, through timidity, fail to feed on a whole Christ. I think that I need not say any more upon this second point. Only I would add, I would to God that there were many that there were that many were here were willing to say, I will have a whole Christ. If you are willing to have him, he is yours. If you will but trust him, he is yours. There is nothing for you to do but to take him as you hope to take your supper tonight. Deceive him into your heart. Or I should probably saying receive that. That's the way the spelling of the copy and paste job. Receive him into yourself to be the food of your spirit. And he is yours forever.
Lastly, I must say only a few sentences on the last point. We are to receive Christ in union with others. The Passover was not a solitary meal. A man did not shut himself up alone and have the lamb roasted and set on the table and try to eat it all himself. No, it was a family meal. All who were in the house of the seed of Israel, master and servants, husband and wife and children, all came to that table and fed together. Oh, I like to enjoy Christ for myself, but if I may not speak for others, I will speak for myself, and I must say that I always enjoy the things of God better with you than I do alone. There is so much zest about having friends to enjoy Christ with us. We can feast upon him alone. Blessed be his name. We do know the sweetness of solitary fellowship with Christ, but we still love more to share the blessing with other Christians. I have no wish to go all the way to the celestial city alone. I would much rather go with Christiana and Mercy and all those little ones, the whole family of pilgrims and Mr. Greatheart and all the rest of them. They had such cheery talks together, and when they met the giants, if one was a little cast down, another brightened him up and encouraged him to play the man. What a fine thing it was for such a poor creature as Mr. Ready to Halt, who always went on his crutches, and for poor little Faith and Mr. Despondency and Miss Much Afraid to get into such good company. It would have been a dreary journey to them if they had, all, if they had gone all the way to the celestial city, each one alone. But when they traveled in such good society, you know, they grew merry. You remember that they were so jubilant when Giant Despair's head was cut off that Mr. Ready to Halt, though he had never done such a thing before, danced without his crutches. It is wonderful what joy comes out of Christian communion and holy fellowship. So it is good that you eat the Passover together, and not alone. It is well that you rejoice in Christ in the company of others who are rejoicing in him. The first with whom we should receive Christ is our own family. And so he talks about the family. Still, when the Jew met with his family and ate the Paschal lamb, that was not the greatest joy of it, for he recollected that everyone else, wherever there was an Israelitish family, they were all doing the same, and that the whole of the chosen people of God were one in keeping this commemorative feast. So are all the people of God one in Christ Jesus. I do like to think that I have fellowship with all the saints. I do not object to have fellowship with those who differ from me in many respects. I do think that there is a communion of saints that cannot be limited. If there is life in you and there is life in me, you may be mistaken and I may be mistaken upon some points, but the one life in us will make us have communion with Jesus. So he continues here at the very end and he says this, Thank God many of us do know what it is to commune with Christ as well as to commune with his people. Both as individuals and as a worshiping assembly, we have often proved the sweetness of fellowship with our Lord. Sometimes at that communion table, he has been set forth manifestly crucified among us. Sometimes on our bed at night, he has spoken with us. I have known what it is to sit up and try not to go to sleep, lest I should lose the overflowing joy of his divine presence. I have been afraid sometimes to rise from my bed in the morning lost and going downstairs. I should break the spell of conscious fellowship with him. Our Lord Jesus is so near his people, and there are times when we have such rapt communion with him that we can truly say that it is eternal life. Then do we sing, I stand upon the mount of God with sunlight in my soul. I bear the storms and veils beneath, I hear the thunders roll. But I am calm with thee, my God, beneath these glorious skies, and to the heights on which I stand, nor storms nor clouds can rise. Oh, this is life. Oh, this is joy, my God, to find thee so. Thy face to see, thy voice to hear, and all thy love to know. God grant us more of that blessed fellowship. For our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, amen.
Well, there you go. I hope you've enjoyed that. Um, some longer devotions from Spurgeon, but uh, such Christ-centeredness as Spurgeon is just so good at. Um, and I hope that as we read, continue to read these, we will grow in our love for God, for the Father, for the Son, and for the Holy Spirit, that we will trust in Him and live for Him and feast upon Him every day. Thank you for listening to this, and we'll be back next week, week number 16. Join us then. Take care, and God bless.